In this episode, we have a special guest, the Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber. Mm-hmm. You know, when I hear REV, I don't think, rrr, rrr. I think, oh my God, church. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. Yeah, right? Angela's spiritual journey is so interesting. It's not at all threatening. No. So nobody be scared. Do not turn off the podcast. <laughs> this is going to be a great interview, I promise. Yes. Plus, she has an amazing, cool new book called Queering the American Dream, and we're going to talk all about it. Yes. Yeah. So, super queer friendly, not scary religious. No. Just putting that out there. I'm pretty sure we will not discuss fire and brimstone. <laughs> not a thing. Uh, unless we're going to roast marshmallows. That's On always the fire? Fun. Some mores. Okay. I'd be all about that fire and brimstone. <laughs> well, maybe that's awaiting us in our afterlife. S'mores for everybody. Love it. Okay. Count me in. Why don't we take a quick break and get to the interview? Let's go. All right. Be right back. Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Tired of wasting time and money on starvation diets that lead to more frustration and stress? If there was a weight loss solution that could actually work for you, would you try it? Then head to golo.com. I'm Steve. I lost 138 pounds in nine months on Golo. I'm Amber. I've lost 128 pounds with Golo. If you're ready to take back control of your life, head to golo.com now and see how Golo can work for you. That's golo.com. My sleep is way better. My inflammation has gone way down. Golo saved my life. I was way overweight. That's what sent me down the path. I wanted to make sure and live for my kid. I have literally tried everything. I was on the verge of getting gastric bypass surgery, and I saw the Golo commercial, and it was the last thing I tried because it worked. Join over 2 million people who found a better way to lose weight with Golo. Your healthier and happier life begins at Golo.com. That's G-O-L-O.com. Again, G-O-L-O.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Lesbian, the podcast about an ex-Mormon gay girl just trying to figure out her life. My name is Mary. My name is Shelly. So, Shelly, we have a special guest today. Mm-hmm, we do. Yeah. Uh, this is so cool. I'm not, I can't even quite remember how we were turned on Whoa. to, yep, weird wording. Turned on by Angela. Just kidding. Turned on to Angela. <laughs> Sorry, Angela. You're going to have to deal with us. We can't, I mean, it's early, but We can't help but ourselves. Still, yeah. We really can't. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. It's just It just seemed like such an interesting story that I was like, we should have her on. So Heck yeah. I'm going to introduce the Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber, and I'm going to go ahead and read her bio that I picked up on LinkedIn. And we were talking earlier, and she's like, um, I think that's right. I don't know. <laughs> we're going to give it a shot. Okay, so Angela Yarber is an award-winning author and artist. She's the executive director of the Holy Women Icons Project, a nonprofit seeking to empower marginalized women by telling the stories of revolutionary holy women through art, writing, and special events. Through the nonprofit, she leads retreats in addition to offering art exhibits, workshops, lectures, and dynamic public speaking around the world. She was a pastor for 14 years and continues to consult with churches on queering worship, preaching, and spirituality. And we're going to circle back to queering worship because I want to know more about that. 
She was a professor for women's, gender, and sexual studies and divinity school professor for over a decade. Her painting, writing, and work has been featured on NPR's Progressive Spirit, Maya Angelou's Memorial Celebration, and the television show Tiny House Nation. That's really interesting. She is the author of seven books, four of which have been included in the top LGBTQ Christian books of their respective publication years. Whether it's painting, writing, leading retreats, or public speaking, her work endeavors to inspire and empower, offering beautiful hope and creative justice in the midst of systems designed to disenfranchise and oppress the marginalized. Nice. Give it up. Give it up. Welcome, (laughs) Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's quite the intro. It is. I'm realizing that's a a long (laughs) bio there on LinkedIn. I'm realizing that uh, I need to update some of that. Uh, The title of our nonprofit has shifted to the Tehome Center, T-E-H-O-M, since I posted that. So that's a good reminder to uh, stay on top of all the things that need updating. That's right. But still the same project, doing the same work, just called the To Home Center now rather than the Holy Women Icons Project. What does To Home refer to? Ooh, To Home is a Hebrew word that means deep or depths. And it's, I won't go into the whole long etymology of the word, but um, it's the word used in the Genesis account for Jews and Christians um, out of the depths God creates. And it's this feminine term for the watery chaos or the depths syncretized with the Tiamat, which is a Babylonian creation goddess. So all this like queer, feminist, wily stuff is embedded in that one word. Very cool. Yeah. Well, she's got some weird watery depths going oh, on in her, in her uterus, pretty sure. Gee. Oh. <laughs> well, she gave birth to seven children. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I did do that. Wowza. I, did. I told yeah. you I was a Mormon. Like, I mean, what do you do except sit home and have babies? Yeah, it's a Wowza. thing. What are the ranges yeah. of your, your kiddos, their ages? The oldest is 22, the one that disappoints my dad, like I was telling you, because he lives with his girlfriend. And then the youngest is about to turn nine. Not got fast it. enough. Yeah, I got, I, I got a long time till retirement, unfortunately. My oldest is eight, so same age. And then my youngest is four. Yeah. Oh, you're hating it. You're hating. It's hard right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love them so much. And it's mm-hmm. so hard. It's so yeah. hard, especially when you're trying to like queer parenting and subvert the status quo with everything about families that makes it's wonderful and good and challenging yeah you can't just turn them loose to the system and i don't mean that in like an anti-system way but just i feel like they need more they need more shown to them than what still is just out there in the world teaching them about families and life and yeah no i'm with you on that for sure yeah and don't just default to bullying because that's i feel like Middle school, I mean, even elementary school to a degree, but definitely middle school and high school is so fraught with that need to fit in. You're just looking on the kid that's weaker than you to pick on. Everyone is. It's just this instinct that we all have. It might be in little ways. Her oldest is eight. Don't freak her out. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Angela, it gets worse. Okay, that's what Mary's trying to say. (laughs) Buckle up, Angela. (laughs) That's interesting. Mary and I were having a conversation yesterday. She's never had kids, never been involved in like kid stuff, really. 
Uh, and so me having all these kids is difficult and it's difficult for me too. And she's asked me, I think it was yesterday, like, how do you do it? Aren't you just exhausted, exhausted and crazy? And I'm all like, the time. I, I am. However, I look back to the years where they were all younger, like where you are right now, Angela. Right. And I'm like, oh, I know it could be so much worse. <laughs> I've been through the worst. Yeah. I feel like we've just gotten out of some of the, the really tough times mm-hmm. and ages because now everyone can like feed themselves They can go to the bathroom by themselves. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's huge. Those things really make a big difference. Um, Yeah. So I'm grateful for that. And our process of becoming a family and foster care systems and adoption and Mm -hmm. unjust policies and all of that have made becoming a family with children really hard. And so um, I'm grateful and raging and tired. (laughs) All at the same time. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I was actually looking in some articles as far as, like, when did it become, I guess, legal? Sure, legal for a gay couple or anything outside the norm to adopt children. And it, it's been relatively recent that it's even allowed. For the longest time, they couldn't adopt if they weren't married. And, of course, right. marriage was illegal for anyone except for straight folks. So I know this has nothing to do with your book, but... <laughs> Well, it does. It's interesting to me. How was it? How was it for you adopting? Because you just said there's struggles there. So for my son, who is eight, we did an open adoption, which meant that um, we connected with his birth mother during pregnancy, and she's awesome and is a huge part of our lives still. And so is his birth father. But um, we had done all of the adoption, home study, case study, all of that stuff in my name when I was a pastor. And then that job became really toxic. And this is all a part of the book, Queering the American Dream. So it it ties in. But the job became really toxic. So I ended up quitting and then called my adoption agency, who is their agency is the oldest with working with same-sex couples in the entire country. And so they they get it. And on the one hand, they're like, well, we're glad that you're honoring who you are and all this. And what this looks like legally is that a single person with a stranger living in her home who doesn't have a job is trying to adopt a child. So we had to do the world's fastest home study for my wife instead of me. So she was able to legally adopt him. I couldn't until same-sex marriage became legal. And then it cost like 4,000 additional dollars and all of this extra invasive work. So that happened with our son. And then just a few years later, my daughter's only four and we adopted her through foster care. And that came with a host of traumas and really invasive home study interviews for us. But some of the first things that were said when we went into court, the judge, the first thing he said was that our two-year-old was fat. Oh my God. And asked us what we had been feeding her and then made a joke about how complicated this was going to be because there's no dad. What? Because it was my wife and I and how he didn't know what to say. And normally I'm a person who would offer corrective, who would say something, who would call someone in. But here we are waiting to see if he's going to rule like in favor, quote unquote, of us adopting our child. So we couldn't really say anything because of that power dynamic. Yeah, you have to sit there while he beats on you and says rude things. And it's like, whatever you say, whatever you say, because you want your child. Oh, Oh, what an ass. Truly. Was he old old and white? I'm just throwing that out there. Yes, and this was in in Hawaii. So in Hawaii, like if you're white, you're called a haole. Yes. And the essence of being a haole is also being kind of like a dumb haole. And so he encapsulated the essence of what that word means in every possible way. And I just remember us and our social worker and our attorney all looking at each other like with our eyes 
enormously wide thinking, what on earth is wow. this asshat saying? And how does he get to make family decisions? Like, exactly. what, the, what How is he even allowed to talk to people at this point? Right? Like, oh, I'm so wow. sorry. How old was your daughter? And was she in the room? She was in the room. And so was my son. Did, did they hear that? Um, they did. I don't know if they quite registered it. And at that point, my son, I think, had experienced a couple negative things from kids who, you know, didn't understand that it, that you could have a two-mom family and said, wow. oh, that's gross or something like that. But on the whole, my kids have had pretty good experiences good. around that kind of thing. Um, and that's good. part of because of the people that we've chosen to surround ourselves with. Yes. Yeah. So we feel really, really lucky about the the chosen family, the Ohana that we've created. Yeah. How long ago was it um, that you were in the courthouse with your two-year-old daughter and this guy said those horrible things? Oh, it was only two and a half years ago. Yeah. So it's not like it's ni- 1957. <laughs> uh, oh, people, yeah. get your shit together. Come on. Truly, yeah. truly. And what's infuriating is that so many times if you were to share that story, a lot of straight folks would say, oh, well, it does, you know, oh, no big deal. It's, right. you know, it's just one comment. But the thing is, is, and that's not even a microaggression, but it's an example of these little underhanded slights that happen mm-hmm. all the time. And they're like death by a thousand paper cuts. Because, Absolutely. You know, and and you don't really know how to defend yourself against those kinds of things because you're, you're stuck wondering, yes. like, did this guy really say that? Yes. <laughs> Really say those things. Oh, man. I am so sorry. Mm. And, you know, you're right about straight people wouldn't, I mean, straight people might feel bad for you, but whatever. It's Mm -hmm. not their problem. But it is the straight people. I think they need to stand up and call out these howlies and be like, hey, man, no. Because he's not going to care if you say it. He obviously doesn't respect you anyway. So it needs to be Mm -hmm. his peers. I don't know. Exactly. That's my soapbox. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and they were all in a weird power dynamic too, because you know, they were the social workers and the attorneys, and ultimately he was the one who, you know, got to make that decision. But nevertheless, my daughter is with us Yay! and she is safe and well. So Good. I'll count that as a win. But yes. but yet another example of how we have to actively queer what it means. Mm-hmm. To be family, to queer what it means to be pretty much anything these days, because the self is at odds with everything around it. Yes. Well, that is kind of a good segue, because I kind of feel like we're burying the lead here. It just got, <laughs> it got so good. I couldn't help. Mary's always like the lead. And I'm so, all, let's talk about this jerk, on the, the judge. I mean, I'm like. We're, we're here ultimately to discuss <laughs> Angela's new book called Queering the American Dream. Oh, yeah, Mary needs to read some shit. And then we can go back to talking, me and you. Okay, Angela? Go ahead, Mary. <laughs> so you keep using that. It's so great. It's like queering this, queering that. Is that. Would that be an adjective at that point? Yes, right or a verb? Or a verb. Oh, a verb. Action. Yeah, that's a verb. Okay, mm-hmm. der. Yeah, I, I, I feel like we're all losing the uh, English language as we know it. Here, let's <laughs> let me just text an emoji to convey all of my emotions. <laughs> text the, the the queer flag, and we know we're. Good. I won't need to use right. any actual words. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting is that, like you know, queer can be used in so many different ways, but the queering, I think of that quote of the late Bell Hooks, where she said, I I don't want to mess up the quote, but the essence of it was queer, not so much as who it is that you're sleeping with, though that can be a part of it, Mm -hmm. but queer as the self that is at odds with everything that is around it. And then you have to create and invent 
and imagine places to survive and thrive. And so I think in that way, queering obviously applies to everyone in the LGBTQIA plus alphabet soup mm-hmm. community, but it also applies to others who are at odds with everything that is around us. And when the self is at odds, I believe like in my book in Queering the American Dream, when the self is at odds with this farce of a dream where we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and slap on a good Southern woman smile, you know, and make our own dream like that, when all the systems are designed to disenfranchise you, Mm -hmm. it just doesn't work, right? And so we have to subvert and overturn and dismantle and ultimately queer that dream so that it's expansive enough for everyone. Oh, I love that. Well, before we get into the book, let's go, let's go back a little bit and talk about you. Our listeners are probably like, Wait a minute, who is this person? <laughs> it's a friend we're chatting with and having coffee in the morning. I, you know, it's, Ange- it's our friend it Angela. It does feel like that. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how we roll. Okay, so let's back up. Before you were a reverend or a doctor, let's just talk about Angela for a minute. I'd love to hear about your background. Uh, you did not grow up religious. Is that correct? Right. Okay. That's correct. You chose that at some point. Whoa. <laughs> Why? Did you just throw that down? I did. What? Let's hear more about that. Sure. Because you identify as queer. That's right. And you're married to a woman. That's right. Okay. So let's hear about that story, your journey to becoming ordained. So I don't come from a religious family, although I did grow up in the Southeast. And so I was in the Bible Belt. It was present in everything that we did because when I was living in a government subsidized living place. There was like a van that came and pick up kids and brought them to vacation Bible school. So I had that like evangelical quote unquote saved experience uh, because of that. I could sing vacation Bible songs with you all day long, you know, deep and wide, deep and wide. I'm a fountain. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Um, (laughs) Y'all sound weird. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's so many. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You know that one too, I'm sure. Right, of course. Father Abraham. Had many sons, uh, many and sons. Sarah. Had... <laughs> There's so Don't many. Don't forget the mother. <laughs> and the concubine. Don't forget the concubine and right, the bastard exactly. child. The bastard child who founded Islam. Wait, that's Let's in not the song? That. It's not in the song. Oh, okay. They, I'm like, damn. They left those parts out. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All had to be the patriarchs. No yes. patriarchs present. That's right. So I wasn't raised in a religious home, um, working poor family, and had this plan as a high schooler to go into the performing arts. And I did end up being a professional dancer for a number of years while simultaneously being clergy. So Wow. (laughs) The dancing reverend. The dancing reverend. Truly. (laughs) I'm assuming it was not exotic dancing. I could be (laughs) wrong. Pole dancing? No. No. There's lots of money to be made there, but whatever. That's true. (laughs) They pass Mm -hmm. the plate. They passed the plate. <laughs> passed the plate. <laughs> now that sounds like a very subversive liturgy. I kind of want to design that. But, uh, Absolutely. So I, I ended up going to this um, conservative, though I didn't know that at the time because I didn't know anything about Christianity, this conservative Christian church because they had a rock climbing wall and I was interested in rock climbing. So they kind of like hooked you know, teenagers. And that's a good one. And in that I had a a really conservative religious experience um, that I call Jesus is my boyfriend. And so (laughs) I did that where I kind of 
fell in love with Jesus. My sister was in love with Jesus. I'm and one sure. of your girlfriends was, and that's why you lost oh, her. I did lose a girl oh, to Jesus. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I wasn't out to myself okay. or to anyone else. Yeah. I, I didn't even have the framework. How old were you? I'm sorry. I was um, 16, okay. 17. Okay, gotcha. So instead of planning on heading to Juilliard and you know creating a life in the performing arts, it was this pivotal time in my life where the ministers at that church sat me down and said, the performing arts, the arts, those bring glory to you and not to God. So Ugh. you shouldn't do them. Ouch. So, yes. <laughs> I ended up going to a small liberal arts college that was associated with Baptists. Mm-hmm. But luckily, the religion department there was moderate. So I wouldn't say progressive. One of them was progressive. Mm-hmm. They kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, this version of Christianity that was handed to you, that's not the only version. Mm. There are lots of different versions and lots of different ways to be a person of faith. I ended up becoming the youth minister at his church where his children were, you know, youth at the ripe age of 18. So wise to be a youth minister then. And they also said, you know, we don't know anything about dance or the arts or that's not our thing. But if those are your skills and your talents and your loves, and you also have this love for faith, why don't you put the two together? So that started this long journey for me of looking at the connections between the arts and dance, believe it or not, which has a very rich history in the Christian tradition, but that's completely erased, strategically erased by most people in power, right? And so through that process, I ended up becoming ordained, going to seminary, and then going to do a PhD. But all along the way, I realized in my preaching and serving churches that my language was really shifting from I believe to we believe to the Christian tradition teaches us Mm. because my own theology was morphing from a theology more to a philosophy, especially as I explored more of um, goddess traditions from around the world and interfaith dialogue. And so that's more where I reside now. I'm still ordained, but I say I hold my ordination with an open hand. So it it could be revoked, but no one has tried to do that yet. (laughs) Oh, so that's a thing. They could just say like, nope, we're going to take that away from you. It could be, but because there is not a centralized hierarchy in the Baptist church, um, it makes it a bit more complicated because you're ordained by a particular faith community. Mm. And so that particular faith community, we need to gather together the 12 men Mm -hmm. (laughs) who served on my ordination council and have them call together their own (laughs) I don't know, synod of sorts to say Mm -hmm. that they should revoke my ordination. And I do have clergy who have since renounced their ordination. Mm -hmm. And I've toyed with that idea. But instead, I think of the myriad queer women who have come before me and who are still seeing me who've never seen a representation like that. Mm. Uh, And so I choose to keep it kind of on behalf of the communities that I represent and see that as really important. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Mormonism, you don't have to be ordained at all, but you can lead a congregation. Well, you got to be a man. Oh, God. Well, of course you have to be a man. Of course. (laughs) But yeah, you could be like a local plumber or electrician or something like, hey, you look like you could lead this entire congregation. You're you're in charge. I didn't quite realize that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There it's. um, Oh, no, it's a calling from God. Yes. Let's not forget that. (laughs) Yeah. No one has to go to like preacher school. You just preach some random guy and they need seminary. They lead someone to lead a congregation. So they're like, oh, God wants you. Um, You don't get paid or anything. You just have to give all your time. And the bishop can be a dentist, a plumber, whatever. And then he somehow 
because God's mantle is now on him, has the ability to counsel people. Yeah, that's the craziest Ew. part. Seriously. Okay. Yeah, it's like getting the worst therapy of your life, and you think that <laughs> yeah. you think that what he's saying is from God. Talk yeah. about screwing right. people up. Yes, yeah, horrible, uh, horrible yeah. practice. Well, and I feel like I knew that about the role of bishops, but I assumed that it functioned like it does in most denominations where they had a training. Okay. No, no. The bishop's wow. training is basically, here's the manual, um, which means like, here's here's the punishments you dole out. Like I remember, I know that's not about me, but when I was uh, 16, I had had sex with my boyfriend. And so I went into the bishop with all the guilt and shame and told him what had happened. And he literally got the handbook from his shelf, set it down. And it was like, he was going, let's see, fornication, fornication. <laughs> um, okay. Oh you Page are, 75. Yeah. You are disfellowshipped for six months. You cannot take the sacrament. You need to come in and meet with me. That's it. There was no like, say three wow. Hail Marys yeah. and, and our father. Right, right. <laughs> Just and, like that. and most Mormons, I'm going to say most, when they go into their bishop, it's like they're looking for spiritual guidance and family guidance. And these guys have no clue. They're right. just like, right. oh, well, you know, and it's their opinions. Well, if, if you would be intimate with your husband more, then he would treat you better. I mean, I've heard horror oh, stories. Oh, it's so predatory, isn't yeah. it? Yes. Yeah. So, Shelly, this sounds like a good time for a break. I agree. We'll be right back. We are back. Anyway, no, I'm not the guest being interviewed, but I yeah. had to put that out there. Mm-hmm. Back to oh, you, no. Angela. <laughs> yeah. And back to our guest. Yeah. <laughs> so, how old were you when you went through seminary, became ordained around that time? And then when did you kind of back out slowly? Well, I was only 22 when I was ordained. So I was in seminary from age 22 to, you know, for three years. So till 25 and then started my PhD. So I was really young. I went directly from, you know, high school to college to seminary to PhD program and then finished all that at 29. Mm. You like school. <laughs> yes, I do. It, it occupied all of my 20s. Um, but I, And I do love learning still, but I'm glad that I don't have to now I'm the professor who gets to take papers rather than ah. write the papers mm-hmm. for someone else to grade. And I would say that I started moving away even as I was being ordained. But it it wasn't a moving away at that point of faith. It was of even at the point of ordination, I didn't have any traditional views. Like my views were not seen as orthodox. And I even remember talking about that on my ordination committee because it was a relatively progressive group of people. A lot of their ideas weren't orthodox either. And so believing things like Jesus was a revolutionary and maybe not necessarily the son of God, Mm. those kind of things were were okay. Wow. Right. Even the feminist theology side of things was affirmed by this group of 12 men. That's Mm. pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. But then it kept moving farther and farther mm-hmm. and farther to where I was wondering, well, you know, I don't I don't know if there is a God doing the calling. And I definitely believe Jesus was a historical figure and, and still today quite the revolutionary who did a lot of subversive queer stuff. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call him a son of God because I don't know if there's a God yeah. who exists. Yeah. I think that we've constructed lots of versions of um, goddesses that I think are very um, compelling and meaningful. Mm-hmm. But I also don't come down on a firm line to say that I'm an atheist or an agnostic because that's a little too wishy-washy. Mm-hmm. And then an atheist is a little too firm. So do you check that uh, spiritual but not religious box? 
Pretty much. Yes. I would definitely do that. Yeah. I like it. I have such similar viewpoints to you. And I love the idea of Jesus being queer. Let's just go ahead and say he was. Because, like, did he like— Definitely. Was he of more course. into Mary Magdalene or was he more into John? His, John, his the beloved. Beloved, Come on. right? So, right, exactly. And, exactly. And he raised Lazarus from the dead, so he must have thought he was pretty special. I'm That's just saying. True. Exactly. <laughs> I agree completely. Mm-hmm. And so many of the things that he did fall into this category of queering, the self that is at odds with everything around it. And so— flipping over tables and being friends with the outcasts and the tax collectors and sex workers. Like those weren't everyday ordinary things that rabbis did, Mm -mm. though there are plenty of fabulous rabbis today who do. (laughs) Um, But at that time, you know, this was quite subversive. And, and in that way, I would use the term queering almost, almost hand in hand with the term subversive. And in that way, I do think that Jesus as a person, as a historical figure was very subversive for sure. Mm -hmm. I love that people, and I'm just learning this, it's it's actually okay to take the version of Jesus that you were taught in some of these hardcore religions and still like have a love for Jesus, but an understanding of who he was not. You know, because it was hard for me leaving Mormonism because I had this I had this connection to Jesus just because like that's when you're raised and Jesus in the manger and he loves you and blah, blah, blah. So when I left Mormonism, it was hard to kind of like toss Jesus. But the more I thought about how I was raised, who Jesus was. Yeah, I'm like, hit the door, Jesus, you know, God's son and blah, blah. Like the whole thing was just this ugly, patriarchal, grody thing to me. But now, like listening to you talking about, no, Jesus, he was a rebel, you know, and he hung out with these people. Probably wasn't even the son of God. Like that sits nicely with me to still have that person in my mind of someone to be like, think about the cool stuff that he did, but get rid of the guilt and shame that he died for my sins. And every time I sin, he cries and, you know, all that horrible stuff. So yes. wait, you don't believe Jesus was a demigod whose celestial father had sex with a teenager to create him? You don't be- believe all that was right? Well, and that was hard right. for me. It's like, I love Jesus, but Makes oh, that's a sense. weird story. I don't like it, but I love Jesus. But the rape happened, but I we, love Jesus. Why do we right? believe that? Yes. Why do any of us believe that? It doesn't even make sense to me well, that you've bought that. And in Mormonism, if I were to go in for um, my worthiness interview, which is basically if I can get a temple recommend, which means I can go to the temple, which means I could be saved. So if I don't do this, I don't get saved. I don't get yeah, to the, my family. The plumber slash head of the church gets to interview her and decide if oh, she gets geez. to be saved or not. Yes. So what exactly. And there's a list of questions. And one of them is, um, I'm, I'm misquoting it, but it's like, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God, blah, blah, blah. If I were to say no, I like, I love Jesus, blah, blah, but I don't think he was the literal son of God. Sorry, you can't go to the temple, meaning you can't be saved, meaning mm-hmm. when you die, you are separated from your family. Like, you have to have this exact version of Jesus. And the, finally, like this realization, like, I don't actually have to have their version of Jesus. And so yeah. I love hearing you say this, like, this is my version of Jesus and it kicks ass. I love that. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Totally. I personally feel like we have all been taught that Jesus is like a demigod because Mm -hmm. of ancient Greek and Roman mythology. It Mm -hmm. was fitting in with that whole mindset. Wasn't it Constantine that tried to get everybody on the same page and change change the holy day to Sunday? 
because that's when the pagans were worshiping and he wanted everyone mm-hmm. to let's all get along here with our religions. Oh, and vote for me. Right. right? And vote for me. Right. <laughs> totally. Totally. We never see anything like that today. No, that would never happen. <laughs> How did queerness fit in to this whole journey with the church and becoming ordained and your belief in Jesus, et cetera? Well, I was not out to myself or to anyone else when I was ordained. In fact, at that point, I was engaged to marry a man. Along the way, realized that's not going to work. And I, it wasn't even because I quite realized that I was queer at that point, even though I knew I wasn't super into him like sexually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so instead of getting married um, on our what would have been our wedding day, I spent I was in the Middle East doing research on interfaith dialogue. As you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I was dancing with whirling dervishes in Syria around the time that I was supposed to be, you know, walking down the aisle. That's called Angela Dodges a Bullet. That's what that's called. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's your next book, exactly. by the way. You're welcome. Oh, perfect. I love that. <laughs> Angela Dodges a Bullet. And instead dances with the dervishes. Oh, as yeah. You do. As you do. Oh, that's so good. As you do. So I didn't end up coming out until I moved to Berkeley, California. How cliche. That'll do it. (laughs) And I met my wife there, the person I'm still with today, and was doing my PhD and also teaching where queerness was huge. This was at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, which is associated with UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And um, a host of the seminaries attached to it are um, either non-denominational or Unitarian Universalist mm-hmm. or Disciples of Christ, UCC, more progressive denominations where queerness is affirmed, but not simply affirmed, but also like celebrated. Yeah, that's And awesome. so a big number of my students identified as queer. It was my first time with my knowledge encountering trans folks. Um, I had never met anyone who was trans to my knowledge up until that point. And so being exposed to and learning about with gratitude and openness, the queer community also helped me realize that the desires and yearnings of my own heart Mm -hmm. (laughs) lived there as well. And so even though I feel like it's super cliche that the girl from Georgia moves to California and then comes out as queer, that was indeed my experience. I think I saw that on a Hallmark movie once. That was the storyline. <laughs> Only recently, right? Yeah, it was just like, this last Christmas, for sure. Right, I was about to say, it's been like the past couple of years where they're like, let's make queer holiday mm-hmm. movies. <laughs> yes. Was, was there a reindeer? There was a reindeer. Right, there was a reindeer yeah. Out, of yeah. a, out of a stable somewhere. And, and the girlfriend exactly. had like a beautiful lab puppy and that yeah. brought them together. And, and the, yeah. uh-huh. the old man who's the school custodian turns out to be Santa. Yes. Pretty sure. Pretty sure that's how of it course. went. Yes. <laughs> of course. Yes. It was a big city, a small town. Oh, yeah. Of yeah, yeah. They're yeah. Hallmark. There's your script. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably listening in and next year we're going to sit down. <laughs> All right. Oh, sure good they idea. are. Here's the script. We haven't done the school custodian. Custodian angle yet. We'll have to do that. <laughs> exactly. And we're like, where are our royalties? <laughs> right? It's going to court. I just know it. That's funny. Oh, here's hoping we don't get that judge that I have. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, I think we've gotten to the point in this discussion where I want to intro your book. Unless there's something Ooh. else. Are more... we finally to the book? I think we're finally to the book. <laughs> Unless there's something else you want to discuss about your background and sort of how you got. To... I mean, there's no, so many no. questions. I mean, w- at what point did you start writing 
literature? It was during my PhD program because my first book ended up being my um, dissertation. And so all of my previous books before this one, um, before Queering the American Dream, were academic books. Well, and then I had one coloring book because I'm an artist too. So that doesn't count Ah, as an academic book. (laughs) It would be for my children. Yeah. (laughs) Holy Women Icons Contemplative Coloring Book. Wow. But prior to that, it was all academic publishing. So this is my first foray into memoir, into commercial publishing. So this is really new for me and a new way of writing. I'm both really excited and thrilled about it and a little nervous too. (laughs) Do you enjoy it though? I mean, clearly. Oh yes. I love it. I do. I see it. I'm very lucky that my jobs are painting and writing and they're also my spiritual practices, the, my methods of self-care. And so I do sincerely pinch myself on a pretty regular basis that the things that I really love doing get to be my work. That's cool. That's awesome. Well, I was going to read just a short blurb from near the beginning of the book. Please. Okay, well, let's let's just dive into it. This is an excerpt from Queering the American Dream. And there's a link in the show notes to be able to order this book. And I'll repeat this at the end in case anyone was like, where do I get that again? Uh, you have to copy and paste the link into a browser window. Unfortunately, our podcast host doesn't let you just click it. Just a little FYI there. People have been like, your link is not clickable. Like, I know. <laughs> That's unfortunate. But this excerpt says, how in the hell did we get here? It should be just a travel memoir, not a eulogy. For 18 months, my wife, toddler, and I roamed the country as my brother's addiction morphed into a bigger and bigger beast. In this meandering travelation, nice word, turned funeral narrative, the lives, legends, and legacies of the revolutionary holy women I paint and write about were and continue to be my guides. They are how I survived this, and I believe they can help you survive and thrive too, no matter your grief or loss. So there's a lot going on in that statement. <sighs> you, were, sure. you were traveling. You were traveling around the, the world at that point. Around the country. Around the country. So we were in the United States. Okay. And what was going on with your brother? So my brother, my late brother, he's since deceased, um, was an addict for a good portion of his life. And at this point in time, he was addicted to um, duster, which a a lot of people aren't familiar with. It's when you inhale computer duster. Yeah. Anytime you do it, um, it's called sudden sniffing syndrome. Um, It can just cut off the connection between your brain and your body and kill you anytime. So each time you do it is like a game of Russian roulette. And at the beginning of our travels, we thought that he was just struggling with something, but we didn't know what. And midway through our full-time travel, we learned what it was and had never heard of that. And we're trying to get him into rehab. He didn't want to go to a faith-based rehab and all of the ones that our family could afford are faith-based and rooted in 12-step programs. Also, a lot of rehabs, when you go in, you have to test positive for some kind of a drug or alcohol. And he can't because computer duster doesn't make you test for anything because it's not made to be a drug, right? And so um, getting him treatment was incredibly challenging. And so we left on this adventure the day the Supreme Court ruled our marriage legal. And for 18 months, the intent was discernment, traversing the American landscape to see where we might end up and plant roots to form this retreat center 
But along the way, because of my brother's addiction, it, it kind of enveloped what we were experiencing. And so it was impossible for me not to experience the world and these travels and even these revolutionary women that were traveling alongside of me um, in the forms of paintings to not experience them through the lens of my brother's addiction and then subsequent death from that addiction. And throughout it all, he ended up you know, spending upwards of $20,000 on computer duster and essentially, you know, dusted himself to death. Wow. That's tragic. It is. Um, He died when he was only 33 years old and um, had experienced a a hell of a lot of trauma before that and had a family who loved him and we did everything that we could. But loving an addict is really, really hard because of someone, especially someone who does not want to get help or whose addiction prevents them from trying to get help. And so it breaks my heart still. Um, It's almost five years ago now that he died and it breaks my heart, especially for my mother. Absolutely. Mm. Wow. The book opens with um, me officiating his funeral. Wow. You officiated his funeral. That must've been not easy. No, it was not easy at all. And I'm very fortunate that I had a lot of clergy colleagues and others who offered to officiate and who offered mm-hmm. to help. But the thing is, is I didn't trust anyone else yeah. with, um, I didn't want addiction to be the only memory of him. He was a full person. Right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't trust anyone else with the rituals and lamentations and words for, mm-hmm. for honoring someone like him. And, and it ended up being a very small family affair mm-hmm. for a host of reasons. But yes, that's how the book opens and then goes back in time to when the journey journey began. Um, And at the very beginning there, we we didn't really know anything was going on with him. So it was just Mm -hmm. kind of my wife and my toddler and, and me, and we're footloose and fancy free, you know, kind of like gallivanting through the woods in rural Vermont. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Let's take another quick break and we'll wrap this up. So Shelly, I know you know firsthand that nothing says I'm an apostate like drinking coffee. And no one says that better than apostate coffee. That's right. If you're ready to express your apostatism, is that a word, apostatism? Nope, but I liked it. Visit apostatecoffee.com and check out tasty blends like Cup of Joe, Choose the Light, Outer Dark Roast, and more. All apostate coffee is sustainably sourced, fair trade, and organic. Oh, even better, so you can feel good about being an apostate. Are you kidding? It's the best. So drink for yourself. Head to www.apostatecoffee.com, enter LDL when you check out, and get 10% off your order. Oh, it's like you get a full tithe back with every purchase. Do it. And we're back. Hello. So this book is a memoir, essentially. What inspired you to write a memoir? Well, I've always loved travel memoirs. That has been my kind of like armchair travel and my go-to when I want to read something that's just for fun. Because as an academic, so often I'm reading for research and not just reading for fun. So there was that piece of things. And that's what I thought from the outset. But then as my brother's addiction got worse and worse, and then as he died, I wanted to honor him. And I wanted to provide hope for other people who are struggling with addiction to see that there are ways out. 
And then alongside that, because you've got my story, but then in each phase along the way, there are these different revolutionary women from history and myth whose stories that I share. And so part of it is also to give an even bigger platform and to shout their stories from the rooftops and say, it's not just my family who queered the American dream, but there are all of these amazing I keep using the word revolutionary, but that's the best word for them. Revolutionary women who have queered this dream throughout history. And if we follow in their footsteps, if we heed their wisdom, then we can kind of, as we talked about at the beginning, go back to making this dream expansive enough for all people. And how did each of the women that you chose to be part of this story play into it? Like, how did you select them and how are they pivotal to different parts of of this book? It's really interesting because I've uh, painted or created assemblage art for about 150 women um, from history and mythology. And about 120, 120 or 130 or so of those are sold in homes and galleries throughout the world. But at the time that we were leaving, I think I had about 100 in the collection and there were only about 16 left. And I had a couple shows along the way as we were traveling. So what I did was I packed up those actual paintings. So the paintings of the women in this giant green Tupperware container. And it was stored (laughs) in the storage compartment of our pop-up camper traveling all over. And then we had these really wild experiences like in rural Vermont where the bins just stored. And I randomly as a campground host meet a couple who loves folk art. And we call my um, iconography folk feminist iconography. And so they're going on and on about how they love it. And I say, well, I'm, I'm actually a folk artist. And looking at images on my phone wasn't enough for them. So we end up hauling out the green Tupperware bin <laughs> and like hanging a pop-up show on the birch trees. And they end up, you know, purchasing some of the pieces and we oh hike them down to their camps and just kind of wild stories like that. And then some of them were the roles of the women like Polly Murray, for example, who was um, the first African-American woman ordained as an Episcopal priest. But before that, she was a civil rights attorney who coined the phrase Jane Crow to acknowledge the sexism that accompanied racism Mm. in Jim Crow laws. She Mm. also didn't have the language for it at that time, but was queer and was likely gender nonconforming or transgender. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So here she is, this woman who's discriminated against for her race, her gender, her gender identity and her sexuality. Right. And all of these profound race who writes a book that Thurgood Marshall called the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. And I'm teaching about her and writing about her and showing her painting when I'm in rural uh, Virginia and seeing Confederate flags flying everywhere that are hampering the otherwise gorgeous, like autumnal glory from the gorgeous mountains and trees. And so there's just different women who kind of come to the forefront of the travels because of things that were happening in the world at the time or because of the location of where we were traveling. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like the locations corresponded to the the women's stories that you were also painting about and then writing about. Absolutely. That's cool. So what is the sort of takeaway uh, that you would like readers to, you know, when they when they read the book, what are they going to get out of it potentially? My hope is that they'll leave um, both inspired and empowered and perhaps more than that, galvanized, like to go forward and queer their own dream and subvert 
and dismantle all of these dreams that are handed to us as what the status quo is, the way that we have to live and have to be and say, you know, that's not working for me. And that's not working for most people, actually, that it's um, these are dreams and status quo that disenfranchise the marginalized and erase the voices of so many who deserve to be heard. And so to reimagine, to invoke radical imagination of what it means to live and be and embody your dream in the world. Yeah, I guess that's my next question for you. What does queering the American dream mean to you personally? Hmm. That's a really great question. I would say that it means for my family in particular that the way that we were living and the dreams that were kind of passed down to us as the way that we need to be, the family living in a big house with the white picket fence and, you know, 2.5 children and all of that, that that's designed by a system and a structure that's rooted in white supremacist cis heteropatriarchy to throw the big woke words out there. And that it's not a system that works for my family and that works for most people. And so we want to dismantle it and reimagine something better to reimagine a better world and to say that that world isn't just off there yonder by and by, Mm -hmm. but here now on earth in the present for us and for the people that we care about and for indeed all people. That's great. And 100% of the proceeds from book sales go to support your foundation. That's the T-Home Center. Am I saying that correctly? Tehome. Tehome. Okay. Tehome. So what's interesting is that all of the money goes to two different charities. One is our, my publisher, Parsons Porch. Um, they are a nonprofit publishing house whose motto is books to bread. And so everything that goes to them goes to help feed hungry families. They're in Cleveland, Tennessee. So in that area. And then all of my author royalties that typically go to the author go directly to the Tehome Center to help um, empower marginalized women by teaching about these revolutionary women through art, writing, and special events. That's so amazing. Cool. So cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us more about that center. How does that work? Sure. So it started off, um, well, the work of the center with these revolutionary women in art and in writing has been going on for well over a decade with me, but we didn't become an official nonprofit until about five years ago on Hawaii Island. And then it moved here with us. And we were first incorporated as the Holy Women Icons Project. Um, and after a while, we realized we aren't just a project, we're a center. And also that name is quite a mouthful. And so we ended up saying that we are the Tehome Center, which means deep or depth. Um, so a center for deep spirituality and a place where marginalized women can come to find a breath for self-care, where people can come to learn more about social justice issues, and then where we lift up these stories of revolutionary women from history and myth. That's really our primary goal. Um, And that's both in painting and in writing. And then those modalities come out in the retreats that we lead, the courses that we teach, workshops and things like that. How do people find out more if they want to like come to a retreat? Is that something that's open to anyone really or... Absolutely. Yes. So they could check out our website, the Tehome Center. That's T-E-H-O-M Center. So C-E-N-T-E-R dot org, O-R-G. And check out what we're doing. They can also follow us at the Tehome Center on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're kind of on all of them. I still haven't learned TikTok, but maybe one day. We keep trying to, and it, <laughs> it escapes us. One of these days, we'll get it, and then we'll help you get it, too. Might be a Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I hoped that my young intern was going to 
help me figure that out. But she's one of the rare Gen Zs who's like, I don't get it either. Oh, so, <laughs> you found the one. <laughs> you found That's the one, funny. exactly. So any of those platforms, we also have an email list that they can sign up on um, through tohomecenter.org. And that's also where they can go and purchase the book or anywhere books are sold actually is a great place to to get it. Or even at your local library, if you don't have the funds to buy it, you can ask libraries to order it for you. And most of the time they will. That's oh, cool. nice. That's great. Well, I say even if you can buy it, go in there and tell your library to order it so that's there for others. Absolutely. We did this interview with some book um People, there's a better word authors. for that. Authors, authors, no, 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 no. no? no these are the people who um, collect them and put them in packs of like. Oh, curators, curators. That's the mm-hmm. word. Oh. oh, it was called our shelves. Our shelves, yeah. It's and, for kids' ooh. books. They curate okay. diverse kids' books. Yeah, yeah. So it's cool. how cool? Yeah, because they're so hard to find, and the issue is they're hard to find because no one requests them. At libraries, well, no one requests them because they don't know they exist because they're not in the library. So it's this cycle of like they're out there, but no, the libraries don't order because nobody requests them. No one requests them because they don't know they exist. So that was why I'm saying go into your library regardless and say, hey, can you get this book so it can start to be publicly available? There, Mm -hmm. that was my absolutely. That was her little spiel. I love it. (laughs) I love that spiel. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. What have we left out? What else would you like our listeners to know? To be honest, I feel like we have covered a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Agreed. <laughs> a whole lot together. Agreed. Um, I, I definitely want people to know that the work at the Tahome Center can't happen in a vacuum. It can't just me be me doing it. It has to be this amazing community, the community that I call the subversive sisterhood of saints around it. the world mm-hmm. who, you know, who lifts up these stories together. And so yeah. the more folks get involved, the better. So I, I imagine there's a way to donate right on your website. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're always happy for donations. And where do the retreats happen? Right now, um, since we moved from Hawaii, our most recent retreat, which was a pilot retreat called Queering the Dream, happens here in the St. Pete, Florida area, um, which was recently ranked for the second year in a row as the top beach in the United States. So that's a a lovely place to holiday. Yeah. So that's not that far of a drive for us. We did that last Mm. year. I'm, you know, I'm not. uh, (laughs) It's a ways. It is quite the drive. I mean, it's pretty. We're in D.C. area. So, yeah. (laughs) That's pretty far. Okay. Well, the Tampa International Airport is only 30 minutes away. There you go. A quick ride. And so we offer those here. And then we also offer some online retreats, including some free ones um, on the website. There's access to a free seven-day online self-care retreat just that we've been offering throughout the pandemic because I don't know about you, but I think we all need some serious self-care right now, especially that kind of like radical self-care for collective good. Yes. So we have those available as well. That's great. Agreed. Well, gosh, Angela, thank you so much. This has really been a very, very interesting conversation. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Mary, you didn't tell me she was so awesome. Okay. <laughs> I got no idea. I'm like, oh, no, another. And she's like but a little she's present. Amazing. You unwrap. You find that out after you unwrap it. <laughs> That's so nice. Good grief. Uh, I'm kind of blushing over here. Good thing this is a podcast and not a video. Y'all have been amazing and hilarious. Well, you're fantastic. No, you're fantastic. No, you're (laughs) fantastic. Tell me more. Tell me more. (laughs) Please. Go on. Stop. (laughs) Uh, Well, our guest today has been the lovely and vivacious Dr. Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber. You got to get those things in the right order, I think. (laughs) The Reverend Doctor. Reverend Doctor. And the book is Queering the American Dream. It's available now. 
check the show notes for the link to order yours or I guess your local bookstore. Perfect. Don't forget to visit tayhomecenter.org and throw some support. That's right. And get some support from them as well. Yeah. There, there you go. go. Perfect. There you go. Thank you so much, Angela, for being yeah, on awesome. the show today. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that was amazing. Yeah. What a cool person. I really enjoyed that conversation. She might be my new best friend. She doesn't know this yet, <laughs> but I'm about to call her. Are you? <laughs> you guys are going to go brunch or something? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to skip over patrons this week. Thanks to everyone for their support on Patreon and Supercast. Mm-hmm. If you would like to give us support, please visit latterdaylesbian.org slash support. We really, really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And while we're feeling appreciative, why don't we thank Dan from Extension Audio? For leaving it in? Sure. Thanks for leaving it in, Dan. <laughs> yep. Thanks so much. And remember, everybody, please steer clear of cults because they're no joke. No joke at all. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. 